Well, good morning. Um, geez, it, it seems to be hot and heavy uh, just about every day. I seem to be learning new things that confirm my wild and crazy theories. So today, uh, it's day two of what's called the Psychedelic Assisted Therapy Global Summit. Um, I actually joined it for the mainly for the second day of the summit. Uh, first uh, speech, I'm only about two-thirds of the way through it. First speech is Paul Stamets on psilocybin. Uh, again, I've made the joke that we should be talking about psilocin, but meh. And the title of the discussion is where science and spirituality synchronistic, synchronistically converge. I just wrote down science meets spirituality. <laughs> so the big takeaway here is if you've been following my podcast since the beginning, I have always had this theory that went against the the norm. And I even mentioned, I, I, I shared this with the doctor before I learned how to express myself, before I learned how to read. He did say that I could just record it and send it to him, but that just seemed weird. I mean, I couldn't even really organize my thoughts. I was shocked that he even spent a couple hours on the phone with me because of how uh, spastic I was at the time. He said he was dyslexic as well, so maybe he understood um, but importantly, uh, connections to inflammation. He mentioned that we're seeing inflammation with the studies of psilocybin. Um, and, and I've mentioned that. Uh, so he's also seeing some uh, neuroregenesis, uh, helping people with dementia, uh, uh, Alzheimer's. He has a, the Stamets stack, which is niacin, lion's mane, and psilocybin. And I wondered, as we're listening to him talk about some of the recent data that just came out, and I was wondering whether he tests lion's mane on its own, because he did say that it showed some benefit to the myelin sheath on axons. I, axions. Don't quote me on this. My biggest takeaway is we missed... Again, that lion's mane on its own has shown an incredible amount of benefit. I'm not sure about his stack. He's saying niacin really does help a lot. We'll have to see. He mentions that he added niacin originally as an antabuse, right? Because you can't take too much niacin. It'll give you some, some serious body load. But that, to me, just seems weird. He said he chose it originally because... Uh, psilocin, psilocybin is a, a vasoconstrictor. He said niacin is a vasodilator. So he thought, man, that's good, right? Anyway, so it did show some benefits um, in the studies. They didn't check against uh, lion's mane alone, uh, which is funny because he criticized a number of the studies for having used plus. Uh, used niacin as a placebo in a sense, uh, like a control against the, the psilocybin, which is a failure, as he says, because you know when you take niacin. But more importantly, um, with this possible synergy, never mind giving someone an active, uh, like a placebo is supposed to be something that doesn't do something. But I laughed because I'm still waiting to hear the actual numbers on how many people came to these studies. Because when we compare these, we have to remember about 36% of people who come to a study are just going to heal because of the commitment, the placebo, hope, community, name all that. But the big thing that came out, and he just mentioned, his own, puts it forward as his own little thought um, theory based on some of the evidence that's come out, 
And you can listen to my podcast. I've been saying this for a long time. And just in a matter of a couple sentences, a lot of my theories have been confirmed. So my first theory was that we misunderstand that microdosing is not the same for everyone. And I don't mean the way they mentioned in this discussion. I don't mean that, you know, point one of a gram for somebody might be more intense than 0.3 of a gram for somebody else. Uh, I do mean that if you're microdosing for, say, creativity, that's completely different from microdosing for, say, trauma. And I've said this for years now, that the problem, and I've explained this before, that if you activate the uh, only uh, a certain serotonin uh, receptor, there seems to be a link to aggravating your, your anxiety, your depression, your malaise, whatever it might be. So I've been arguing that we need to take a, a, a threshold dose at all and, or more, or arguably maybe even take what I call an intense trip to begin this experience. And lo and behold, he just said that he agrees with me. And the reason why he believes it works, and this is what I've said since the beginning, but he says it in a reverse way. So the way I explain it is, if you're looking to heal, and I actually agree with him that psychedelics can be used for people who are so incredibly sick, so incredibly damaged, traumatized, whatever you want to call it, that they just can't get past their own self, as it were. And that the psychedelic allows them to see this glimpse, the third jhana in Buddhism, the glimpse of equanimity, the glimpse that you are not the center of the universe, a glimpse that you have the potential to heal, the possibility to heal, you can be something other than what you you think you are. You are something separate from your trauma. All these different experiences. I call it ego recontextualization. Right? Some people call it ego death. But until you have this experience of, as I say in French, when you're no longer au bas du ciel, right? You're not the, the base of the sky. You're not the hinge pin of the universe. When you see that you're just a piece of the puzzle. That, that's this experience that allows you to understand that maybe I can heal. Maybe my perceptions are off. It's a cascade effect. So I've always said you got to begin with that experience and then the microdosing provides you with the support needed. I've always recommended Dr. Fadiman. You're not going to microdose every day. You're just going to destroy your, your, uh, your uh, neurotransmitting uh, system. What you need to do is feed your microbiome and the microdosing after a major, like, well, I'll share my own protocol. So if I'm having a very major issue, in fact, the last couple uh, derealization, uh, disassociation experiences I've had, I haven't turned to psychedelics. I've actually turned to um, using previous experience as a touchstone. Touchstone. Because I've come to the conclusion once you realize that healing is possible, you don't need these extra tools. You can use much simpler tools like mindfulness, meditation, uh, fasting, um, sweat lodges, vision quests, these sorts of ideas, visualizations, mantras, mudras, mandala as, as Jung used. So I recommend you take a very strong dose so that really activate all of those serotonin receptors, get this experience of what some people would call the divine language I just simply say that you see healing's possible. Who you are is, is not this concrete thing. You're able to shape. You're able to heal, to change all this jazz. And for me, 
microdosing is just a little bit of a support. For me, it works exactly the way um, uh, Paul Stamets uh, explained it here. He says, um, how did he explain this feeling with the microdose? He said, you shouldn't notice it, and I've explained this before in my podcast over the last couple of years. You should be taking below a threshold dose. So you're, you're taking it. You really couldn't say that you're on anything except for maybe colors seem a little, a little more vivid. Music seems a little more rich. Uh, and he mentions that your mood might improve and you just feel a little sense of hope. And this is where this all boils down to. I mean, we're an hour into our first discussion and the entire takeaway is community. It's acceptance. It's uh, being together. Oh, sorry. I apologize. I actually caught up on the movie from the first day. Uh, the movie was called Crazy Wisdom, Crazy Wise, I think is the name of the movie. But it talks about this idea, as I've said in recent podcasts, that Carl Jung himself felt that he was going through a situation that was essentially what he thought was schizophrenia. He's going through some sort of a, a break. And I've talked about this myself, that I feel I had to lose my mind to find myself. Right? And once I was able to understand this idea of know thyself, what the context of self, simply only requires for someone even as incredibly traumatized and, 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 um, and damaged as myself, it really only took... Like I said recently in my review of Gabor Mate's book, The Myth of Normal, it only took buying in the one time. That one time is when you really see that you aren't the center of the universe. For me, it tied back all the way to some of my first experiences. As I said, sitting in a cafeteria in a mall, uh, playing the, uh, the thought experiment of, is everyone just actors on my stage? Are we all actors on a stage? Following that process through, that thought experiment, I realized that it's impossible for me to be the center of the universe. It's impossible for these people to only come and go when it's within my purview. That's ridiculous that these people just go into, into stasis when, when their story doesn't impinge on me, right? Because as simple as understanding that the complexity of their experience for it to enrich my experience would have to be so deep and involved that it almost takes us to the uh, the the Yogacara Madhyamaka uh, agreement. The fact that the universe might be complete another illusion, but the fact that we interact with it—I think it's called the uh, Sotantrika. Pre Don't quote me on this. Um, there's this uh, quandary about whether conventional reality uh, is real uh, or just, uh, you know, illusion. So the, the final agreement in this, and I love it because this is what gave birth to my tradition, the Yogacara Madhyamaka, I call Chittamatra. So it's a combination of Yogacara and Madhyamaka, which I love because I think it's a synergy of all of the previous teachings, and it became the the, um, um, what would you call it? It became the, the well, it became the, 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 the mother or the, the grandmother of what eventually became Vajrayana, uh, the Tibetan Rite, and, and then Chan in China, and Zen over in Japan. And what they came to was this conclusion that, yeah, you're right. 
right? The world is essentially illusion. Whether you believe it doesn't exist at all, or you believe that we're so biased that our experience of reality is not what it actually is, so it is essentially a delusional experience. But we interact with it. So that necessitates that we treat it as real. Carl Jung explained this. In active imagination, you have to interact with uh, the fantasy as if it were real, right? This is this buying in that I said that Gabor Mate still is yet to do and which I think is what allowed me to go from needing to take psychedelics uh, for major uh, disassociative experiences to being able to treat it with other um, protocols, much less intense, right? Because... I have something to, to reach back uh, to. And that's exactly what Paul Stamets explained. He said he now feels, based on the science, and again, this is bleeding edge. He says it's very bleeding edge. He says it seems to me, based on what little data we have now, and there's more than, than there were even a few years ago, he said that people that begin with a larger dose and follow it up with microdosing, didn't mention the frequency because I think it's all over the map, I personally think you should take a major dose with intention. So this is not at a party. This is not out having a good time. I actually argue if you're advanced enough, I like the sitting in the dark or, you know what I mean, literally spending hours uh, with yourself. And after that experience, you have a touchstone to reach back to. And that's what Paul Stamets said. He said, because... Um, 30% of people didn't like the experience itself. The difference was you give them this major experience. Not everyone's going to awaken to the potential. But he says microdosing allowed this reach back, as it were. Uh, it's, it's, that, it's the string that reconnects us to that original experience. So... I've talked about this before. Just like in Casino meditation, you, when you're interacting with magic or mysticism, whatever it might be, you believe. But when you're out of it, you have to become very analytical so that you can get the proper understanding. Carl Jung understood this, that the risk is similar to schizophrenia, right? At what point does arbitrary meaning become problematic. I mean, we saw this in that movie, Crazy Wisdom. This poor guy began understanding that it was his connection and, and, uh, and a system, and that gave him a certain amount of healing. But he just kept going with this, and he started to believe he could uh, systematize the universe with maths. Right? And it all began with God squared equals man, man squared equals God. It's literally as simple as what the Upanishads taught the German, uh, the Germans of the time, right? Max Müller and, and, and Nietzsche and eventually Jung. This influence that Nietzsche had on Jung was no different than the influence that the Upanishads had on Nietzsche or Schopenhauer. Because Schopenhauer, again, heavily influenced by the Upanishads. And, and within it, is the Isha, the first, arguably, I would think, right? They did the first 11, 12, uh, depending on the period of time. But certainly one of the first would have been the Isha of Panishans and the Sixth Sutra. So you wouldn't have to read very far into it, teaches us 
that when you see the self in others and you see the others in yourself, that's true awareness and understanding of what, what the universe is made up of and, and how it works for others and you. I mean, when they're talking about community is the healing, <laughs> I just, I can't believe that no one stops and goes, well, wait a minute here. That's the third jhana in Buddhism. That's Vedanta's goal. This idea that we're meant to get in touch with this connection. Just yesterday I realized there is a movement um, centered around the secret of the golden flower. I've mentioned this before. It's a, it's a Taoist alchemical uh, book that's essentially kind of like a culty, you know, we don't really know how much of it survived from antiquity. But what it is is Taoist meditation. It's just um, jikung, uh, like uh, internal qi um, uh, conditioning, right? And what it essentially is is kundalini yoga that's been handed down, right? So what it is is instead of just a movement like in jikung uh, or yoga, it's the internal aspect. So even if you're not moving, you can still develop this internal chi, this internal energy, this life force, whatever you want to call it, right? So even within the the uh, the secret of golden flower, we see a community of people saying, "This is the secret. This is the secret." But if you read the introduction, Richard Wilhelm himself, who was who influenced uh, Carl Jung, it was his translation of the I Ching that changed it, and. He, uh, Richard Wilhelm uh, invited uh, Jung to write uh, a psychological analysis of the the uh, secret of the golden flower. But right within Richard uh, Wilhelm's translation, he mentions Tian Tai and their um, Qiguan, Qiguan, uh, which is calm, abiding. Um, it's essentially uh, Shimatha Vipassana uh, in Chinese, uh, Qiguan. It's um, watching and calm, right? That guan is watching and jur is calmness or, uh, yeah. So they mention this. Well, that's tree. I've mentioned this gentleman before. He's, uh, what, about fifth, sixth century. Sixth century China, right around the time of Bodhidharma. No evidence that they met each other. But Yi is a patriarch of Tiantai. I argue in recent podcasts as well that He's um, a patriarch of Zen and Chan as well. So what he taught was this Chiguan, calm abiding. The reason why I translate it is that because that's what he means by watching. That's awareness. It Chiguan is the Chinese um, Satisampajana, right? Because even when you're in movement meditation, your goal is to be mindful of the lessons and to apply it to all of life's daily activities, right? So yoga is a step towards carrying this off the mat and into everyday life. So that's what we're looking at here, right? You can't teach people yoga without the, the, the depth part because all they're going to be doing is poses. They see no benefit. They might find some physical benefit, but... Since healing is gestalt, without the mind-body connection, they're never really going to heal. So, once again, my theory seems to have been proven in the sense that I've been saying this for years, long before anyone else had this belief, that you can't just take 
microdose uh, psychedelics and theogens and expect to heal. Right? It's a gestalt thing. But more importantly, I have been very clear on my belief, now theory I could even possibly say with some science that supports it, that you have to separate two people. There's people that need creativity help, people, even people who maybe just want to feel a little bit better, feel a little more hopeful, a little more positive. But just like with mindfulness and meditation, you have to separate the traumatized, which arguably is a huge portion of the population. But if you don't separate them, what you actually might do is make the ones that need the healing the most, the traumatized, you can make them far worse. With a medicine that has the potential to help them heal, it really is, it's the, uh, it's the, the, the duality of non-duality. Right? It's the uh, union of the opposites, as Carl Jung said. So what Stamets ended up putting forward is what I've been saying for years, that you need to take a, a larger dose, especially if you're hurting, because then the microdosing has something uh, to, to reach back Right, because without it, I mean, so the colors are richer, right? Anything tends to uh, tends to lose its luster. I love to quote the Conan. Right, there comes a time when the uh, the rubies cease to sparkle, and the gold loses its luster. I may not be quoting it properly, but I love that that. Without that commitment, I mean, certainly you got to get the protocol right. As I said, I mean, without um, psychedelic-assisted therapy, there may be a lot of people that wouldn't heal. But at the same time, there can be just as many that will be more harmed by it than healed. So as I said, um, but halfway through this video, and it already seems that we are making progress, but what's funny is Paul Stamets mentioned that he, we cannot commercialize this, right? It must be acceptable, accessible to the public. But at the same time, we've just seen what happened to cannabis. We knew this because the Israelis studied that, again, this entourage effect that Paul Stamets loves to talk about is incredibly important. And there was more healing in, uh, you know, this natural occurring, right, all these different cannabinoids, he alludes to the healing uh, because of the, the mushrooms and the mycelium. But I laugh because, he, again, people are only taking the fruiting bodies of these mushrooms. And when he talks about the entourage effect, again, in this case, talking about lion's mane and niacin. But what we should be talking about is the mycelium and the fruiting body. That's what we're getting at here. There's possibly... Uh, just as much healing or more healing potential in the mycelium, but he didn't go into that yet. But I argue it seems that we have learned this lesson, that we're likely to commercialize this healing protocol to the point where it's actually going to help far less people than it has been in the last 10 or 20 years. I, I would... I would hazard a guess that there's been millions of people that have been helped by psychedelics just in the last 10 years. 
and I make a prediction that in the next 10 years, that number is going to drop significantly because it's not just the commercialization. It's, it's what I've talked about before. We have so many of these gurus who want to be the arbiter of, of everything. And as I said before, that is what I believe is the problem with faith and religion and meaning. It's not that it's, it's absent or it's corrupted. It's we're absent. And we're corrupted because we don't realize that it's usually a person that called themselves religious that has toxified us, right? We're absent. We're not mindful and we're not present, right? And the real problem is we don't buy in with good faith, right? Meaning requires devotion. That's why in yoga they talk about bhakti. But again, I've mentioned the, the Bhagavad Gita uh, has a number of different... There's wisdom yoga, there's devotional yoga, uh, and then there's what's considered the most important, which is action yoga. And so that's my prediction here. I think we're going to help far fewer people because not just the commercialization of psilocybin, of, of, of MDMA, of psychedelic assisted therapy but the fact when we have that's the next speech from Rick Dobbin he, uh, his speech is universal mental health and a spiritualized human society a vision of what psychedelic assisted therapy can bring to the world he says that but Rick Dobbin believes that it should be uh, only authorized therapists that conduct these healing um, experiences and so I argue that over the next few years to the next decade, we're going to see far fewer people being healed by these protocols because of all these gatekeepers. Right? And the greatest gatekeeper of all is believing that this, yes, it has an incredible amount of healing potential. And, 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 and that's what Paul Stamets said. I won't disagree that he, he says that all signs point to it being one of the most uh, probably one of the most potentially um, uh, I can't remember how he put it but he thinks it has the most potential for healing or I can't remember exactly how he said it but I don't disagree but the, the biggest gatekeeper in this case is he doesn't realize the true healing isn't the psychedelics it's not even the placebo, it's us. It's the buying in. Because again, he mentioned about, and I love, this will be the last little anecdote that I drop, just to prove that these scientists kind of don't know what maybe they're talking about. Because he said that a lot of these, 95% of these clinical trials are using just the molecule, the psilocybin molecule, which again, that'll be psilocin. They're only using the molecule. They're not using it in situ or any sort of in combination. And then he compares it to taking psilocybin with mycelium, I guess lion's mane. I think because it's not psychoactive, it's been studied more. Um, I've heard a number of scientists mention that the mycelium of the psilocybin mushroom would have even more potential than, than lion's mane, but we'll see. Still early days with the test. 
But instead of understanding that the healing is not improved, it's again the buy-in. Right? Because he didn't even stop to realize that, oh my gosh, not only are these people only taking like just the, the chemical, but they're also taking it in a very sterile environment. It's just not the right experience. I argue this psychedelic-assisted therapy is actually not the way it's supposed to go. We need to have it more like the hippy-dippies, believe it or not. A lot more individual experience. But just to show you where I think the real gatekeeper here is, is we've seen it with LSD. The real healing potential is within us. And I think the same thing with psilocybin, and he's kind of pointed to this, that someone will take uh, a big dose, but not all of them heal. Not all of them will even see benefit. In fact, he said 30%, 28%, I think he said, found it a negative experience. But over the long term, with microdosing, these people look back and see this as a benefit. But if you look at this, if these people are taking a microdose and it's not uh, a threshold dose, so once again, is it not this practice? I mentioned in a previous podcast that a friend of mine got toxified by, by um, the robes in this particular uh, group, handing out robes to be a devout uh, Buddhist practitioner. And it became toxic because he saw the robes as um, attachment and uh, hindrance. Instead of what it is, it's preliminary. You put on the robe, you begin to be mindful, you begin to be present. This is time for reverence. I can't remember who said this. It might have even been Bukowski. No, it wouldn't have been Bukowski. But this idea that you need to spend time in silence. You don't have to pray, you don't have to meditate. But just be there. And it's in these moments that we see the true benefit. So the real gatekeeper here is once again, they criticize the modern uh, mental health, whatever you'd want to call it, system because they push everyone into pills rather than other options like diet and cognitive therapy. I mean, there are benefits to a bunch of different protocols, but as they say, we're pushing everyone into pills. Do we not see there a problem with the fact that now we're just pushing everyone into psychedelics instead of realizing, and yes, Paul Stamets did mention it, that he said that it needs to be available for the vast majority of people so they can use it, but I'm just highlighting what I actually think is going to happen because, not to criticize Paul Stamets, he's part of the problem. Even though he agrees with me that this stuff needs to be available for the vast majority of the population, for the vast majority of healing, potential healing that could result, he's willing um, to let go of these essential tenets to encourage more study. So he'd be willing to agree to psychedelic-only assisted therapy, and he, we've done that here in Canada, to, to move 
the needle forward. In fact, they've supported things like ketamine and MDMA-assisted therapy when it is not the greatest potential. But what has kept them from studying the medicine with the greatest potential? That was psychology, believe it or not. Their fear, irrational fear, right? So that's my takeaway so far. I mean, uh, we're only halfway through his speech this morning on spirituality and, and science. Um, I argue that uh, what psychedelics are actually doing is actually opening us up to the potential, right? Spirituality is just a synonym for synchronicity. It's a synonym for hope, as they said it throughout this speech. So the healing potential lies in us. Psychedelics, meditation, religion, spirituality, that's all an attempt to get us to believe in ourselves. As Nietzsche said, the only reason why we believe in something outside of ourselves is in no small part because when we come up with a groundbreaking, uh, you know, life-changing idea, right? A eureka experience that we have so little faith in our own potential, in our own humanity, in our own divinity, that we invent an, an extrasensory person to attribute this whatever it might be, right? Hope, uh, sometimes even doubt will attribute it to, uh, you know, a devil. But, but faith, I've said this before, it's commitment, it's confidence, and it's devotion. If we're all learning that life is inherently dissatisfying, if life is, is difficult with our negativity bias or just the world becoming more difficult, busier, whatever you want to call it, if the inherent truth of existence is that it's not perfect, it's not fun all the time, well, then the answer is resiliency. It's the eternal recurrence. Right? Embracing the good and the bad, as ordered. So that doesn't include putting your faith in a placebo or, or a, a physician or a protocol or a psychedelic. There's only one person that has the potential, and that's you. And as I said from the very beginning, we've seen this an entire book by Gabor Mate, and now an entire conference on psychedelics where we have medical professionals and, and, uh, and scholars and scientists who are all putting their faith, which they would be pretty upset me using that word, but they're putting their faith in spirituality grounded in science. Maybe that's what they're thinking it is, right? All of these scientists are the same. They're closeted religious zealots because they believe, oh, it's the interaction of this compound with that compound or it's the lion's mane and the niacin and the psilocin. It's this, it's this, it's that, it's this, it's that, it's that, it's this, this. Instead of stopping and going, wow, we are an incredibly complex and plastic system. I'm going to apply the tetralemma with a little bit of faith. I can't know if it's A or B or A and B or maybe none of the above. 
But we knew, we do know that something's happening. And thus, I am going to put my faith in this protocol. And when we get uh, patients and physicians both having the same faith, trust in the face of doubt. I mean, how many of these sick people live with doubt, not just in their own mind, but the fact that these doctors regularly talk about, we need more tools in our toolkit. Well, you're telling me you don't have faith that you have the tools that you need to heal the human condition. For me, that's the gestalt. Right? You can't separate the mind and the body in healing. You can't separate the psychedelic from, from the person or the experience. You can't separate the experience from the person. But you can manage the narrative. Right? Because so much of this drama has to do with feeling powerless. I mean, who was it? It was Gaber Mate on Joe Rogan recently. He was explaining what, what trauma is as an actual adaptation. So if someone's annoying you or harassing you, you'll either fight back or you'll run away. You'll leave. Fight or flight. What if you can't? Well, then you've got to freeze or you have to. And this is all a loss of agency. They even mentioned this. A Zen uh, monk uh, anthropologist mentioned that it's agency. It's their loss of, um, where did she put it here? It's a loss of our agency and our, uh, she used another A word. Autonomy means the same thing. And so rather than teaching people that, um, you know, you are your brother's keeper, you know, yourself, empowering them as as the healing potential. Well, no, we're, we're telling people instead of it's being pills, now it's, uh, you know, the psychiatrist or it's the psychedelic. But nobody is pointing it at the correct person. Right? Because truly, really, we have all this faith that it's the psychedelics that's healing us, but I mean... Who's really making the colored lights that hypnotize? Right? All you need to do is ask them to get away. Sparkle someone else's eyes. Right? Because, again, it's this buy-in. Right? Acceptance and detachment. If you buy into whatever protocol, 36% of someone coming to a healing protocol, a study, whatever you want to call it, is going to heal because they want to heal. And yet we don't ever stop and realize that, wow, wow, that 36% actually beats a lot of protocols that we consider miracles of modern science. Yet we don't understand how we're denaturing our potential by putting our faith in, in the psychedelic and not realizing that there is no healing without the placebo. Because you can see it with psychedelics, uh, I'm sorry, um, 
serotonin reuptake inhibitors. This is currently now the thing that they talk about. They even discussed this in this podcast that we used to think it was a chemical imbalance and that's been proved as wrong. But they still use the placebo. Right? So when it came to serotonin reuptake inhibitors, you have a lot of people who are very sick. And technically it took, what, a week, two weeks, sometimes three weeks for these uh, compounds to really start to show themselves. I told you before, incremental growth is not something the human mind is uh, predisposed to see, to notice, to pay attention to. So we tell uh, the patients six weeks, two months, whatever the doctor wants to tell them. Because one, if you're the type of person that takes three weeks and someone told you it takes one to three weeks, well, do you start wondering at the three weeks and start wondering whether it's not going to work for you and it's a deathward spiral. And so you've just impinged on the potential healing with your negative placebo. So we tell people it takes six weeks. So that hopefully in that six weeks, either it's actually begun to help or they can begin to believe that they can help. This is where psychedelics come in. They're not the healing protocol, same as any psychiatric drug. They're just something to help you, take the edge off, give you a little bit of strength. But after decades of seeing this for myself and family and friends and online, I see the opposite. I don't see people being empowered and say, this is going to give you um, uh, the tools that you need so that you can uh, start to be more positive, right? You can begin to exercise and, and, and think more positively about your future, right? Hope is, is not always as easy to, to teach, let alone instill. But if you teach people to have hope in hope, that's what changes things. That's what placebo is. That's what psychedelic healing is. Is helping people understand that there is hope. There is a possible different path for themselves and for their, you know, their experience, their existence. But just like synchronicity and schizophrenia, it's a tight line. It's a thin line. Right, that you have to be careful of because you can cause as much damage as you can healing. Because you do need to, to give the patient support. Right? You've got to make them think that I have something here that's going to work for you because they've lost hope in themselves and, and, and uh, what have you. But if you don't make sure the patient understands that they are the key, they're the important part, that without their buying in, without their agency, without their autonomy, without their embracing of the protocol and the potential, it's just a wasted time, possibly worse. Because technically, as I said, you can give someone a psychedelic and make things worse, and the same thing can be said, I mean, my own personal experience, I 100% thought this would work. 
back when we were trying to figure out what my autoimmune disease was, and it presented itself as a um, like a generalized anxiety disorder or um, what have you, social anxiety. So my doctor, of course, must have been given money for this. Uh, he could bring in some kid from the local college. Uh, I do believe she had only had a couple courses on this stuff because I've seen a couple of these uh, cognitive base uh, therapy uh, practitioners. I mean, they only take a basic course. They have no real experience. Because as example, uh, my first experience was this one. This was mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. So I thought it would work, but it's not. No, no. What they mean by mindfulness is be mindful of your anxiety. That's actually how it was taught. Not mindful of, of a, the irrationality of your anxiety and how temporary it is, but challenge it and be mindful of it. And guess what that does to the traumatized person? Oh, my God. It just makes everything worse. And then when I told the lady that this was a normal experience, when I told her that it just seems like it's making a lot of these things worse and it's making me think like I'll never be able to heal and blah, blah, blah. What am I going to do? I'm losing hope. And she got up and ran out of the room. I am not exaggerating. Ran out of the room when I was in crisis. Not there to support me, but as soon as things weren't going exactly the way her textbook said it was supposed to go, she ran out of the room and we never had another appointment because she was too scared to even talk to me. And keep in mind that I had actually paid all of the money I had cost me 40-some dollars for this book and CD that she recommended that would just solve all my problems. Yeah, literally. But more importantly, I'm going two and three towns over to go to my doctor. So this is everything. It takes me months to gather the resources and the strength and ability to go see my doctor. Because again, I can't go long periods of time between bathrooms and I can't sit or stand for too long, can't walk too far. Just a, a complete and utter nightmare. Right, But she literally made everything worse. She actually, instead of going, oh, well, that's normal, which is normal, all the documentation says so for trauma, that's normal for you to feel a little hopeful and sometimes it can get a little more difficult. This is why I started studying mindfulness and trauma and why I'm currently studying um, uh, St. John of the Cross is uh, the obscure night of the soul. I prefer that translation. Just a little hint, uh, it's the obscura of alma. Alma is the Spanish word for soul. Not that far off from Atma, right? In Sanskrit, it really is quite freaky. But then my, my final experience with this was another lady with a Canadian mental health, whatever it was, right? And this was not too long after I'd begun to really realize that I had come upon something. I, I began to eat anti-inflammatory and pro-immune and, uh, you know, really started to embrace uh, not just, you know, the mindfulness and meditation all the time, but not just being able to get through life, but trying to apply the mindfulness and meditation to heal and, and get better. So I went to this and she said, oh yeah, we got lots of help for you, for someone with trauma. At that point, I'd realized it was trauma that I needed to, to heal. Uh, trauma, the inflammation was sourced with the trauma, right? So I wasn't just, you know, a babe in the woods. I knew what I was looking for. So this lady said she was quite experienced uh, with this protocol. And so what it was, it was uh, cognitive-based therapy. Again, challenge your anxieties. And the way they did it, again, this is Canada, so everything's uh, oh, done uh, as, as poorly as possible, it seems. But you're given a handout, and you're supposed to list your anxieties uh, on a sheet. 
and you're supposed to go and challenge them and then list them, how you felt before and how you felt after. And what's disgusting is she never even explained why you do this. Not in advance. Uh, and then we never had a, t uh, a chance to discuss it later because of how she, uh, how horrible she was as a professional. And I really wouldn't call her a professional. So she told me I had to uh, list my anxieties between 1 and 10. So the example would be um, crossing the street. At the time, it was so bad that I refused to, I thought it was agoraphobia, but it's disassociation, depersonalization, derealization. It's a whole bunch of things related to trauma. But I thought it was just, you know, social anxiety and fear and all this jazz. So I wouldn't even cross the street because people staring at me uh, from the cars would just freak me out and I'd have a panic attack. So she'd ask me, okay, well, you know how you felt before, your level of anxiety between 1 and 10, before you crossed and then as you were crossing or after you were crossing, something like that. I might have added the extra while you're crossing versus after. That would be smarter to have people write all of that. So after I've studied and, and found out why, what it, you're supposed to do is teach these people that, yes, at the beginning, you feel all sorts of anxious because of Carl Friston's free energy. You're predicting all sorts of horrible shit. People are going to like open their car windows, start yelling at you and making fun of you. While you're walking across, you're nervous. There's a change in the type of nerves because you're in the situation as opposed to thinking about uh, the future. So you're actually in the situation. So it is nerve uh, racking, but it's different. And then the third is after, when you start to realize the catastrophizing at the beginning. And, and yes, you had a lot of nerves, but a lot of that was you building it up during. Uh, so then after, what was your experience? Do you realize how you um, um, had caused a lot of this anxiety yourself? This is all stuff I learned after the fact. She literally just told me, here, take this sheet, challenge your anxieties, list them one to ten, and then we'll come back and talk about it. So I was supposed to just go to the street and go, oh, how nervous am I? Between 1 and 10. And then cross the street. How nervous are you? Between 1 and 10. And then after I got to the other street, how nervous are you? Between 1 and 10. Well, because she didn't explain about this cognitive uh, uh, catastrophizing and all this different stuff about trauma, and I don't think she was qualified. She was only qualified on implementing the cognitive-based therapy, nothing else. But she didn't explain I've said this before, that the impermanence of this stuff is desperately important, but even the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy didn't even, mention, um, didn't even mention impermanence. So I went back and, and I tried to explain to her um, how it just actually made me worse. So not only was I catastrophizing, I actually had to think about how nervous and anxious the catastrophizing was making me, which made it worse, and... Oh my gosh, it was a nightmare. And I was trying to explain to her how that was working out, but I accidentally misspoke. Remember, I'm severely dyslexic. So it's kind of disgusting that I was given a, a paper handout just in the last five or six years, but neither here nor there. I found out recently, I think I mentioned this, that uh, our Ministry of Transport offers uh, special accommodations, but you have to ask. It's kind of sad that they don't make it clear that, you know, again, neither here nor there. So... I misspoke, I do believe. I do believe I understood it was between 1 and 10. But I misspoke because of my nerves and trying to explain this to her. And she was obviously being kind of judgmental. She freaked on me. She went, oh, that's what you're doing wrong. It's not between 1 and 5. Because I misspoke. I said between 1 and 5. I listed them as between 1 and 5. She freaked on me. I said, you're doing it wrong. It's between 1 and 10. And it's like, wow. The number doesn't matter. 
right? Because a three is a six, right? Smarten up, lady. Sure, there may not be as much gradation, but the first time someone has actually done this, do you really think that you're going to really be able to suss out between an eight and a seven? Oh, see, it wasn't so... No. This is supposed to be teaching them how to manage their emotional regulation. Try to stay within their uh, window of tolerance. Like all of these terms, but they're all trademarked by the different therapists. You can't say window of regulation because that's uh, Don Siegel's uh, term. You can't say um, uh, emotional regulation because this is this guy's particular term. So in the end, these therapists aren't training anybody. And so I left and never went back. And I've made sure to tell people not to have anything to do with the Canadian Mental Health Association and trauma because the entire office was filled with ladies that outweighed me. And so after spending years beginning to heal, realizing how important diet and anti-inflammatory and supporting immune system and all of the gestalt of all this, it was a shock to me that these mental health professionals were all not just a little bit, but grossly obese, grossly obese. There wasn't a single person in that, and I'm not being mean because, again, I've talked about this. I used to be over 400 pounds myself. I was shocked at the hypocrisy that not a single person in this office would be categorized as anywhere near close to healthy. And they didn't have windows in this office except for where the patients are waiting, which I think is probably not the greatest because this window was in a strip mall and people coming and going and like they're literally on display. Oh, you got mental health? Well, why don't you sit in the waiting room right on display of everyone coming by and walking by seeing that you're a nut up. But the office is where these people work and counsel these people. No windows. Right? But that, I found out after the fact, is par for the course here in Canada. Uh, mental health is kind of a joke. I think I've mentioned this before. It wasn't until 2018, that's 2018, not even five years ago. That's when Canada recognized post-traumatic stress disorder. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, just to give you an example that I really love, this was actually a personal anecdote now that I remember. I write that down. Um, well, it was, a, it was along the lines of when they were talking about being your own therapist, I believe. But it actually reminded me of... Um, I contacted the Canadian Veterans Affairs because um, both my father and my grandfather both uh, both injured and traumatized by their uh, experience in war and, and uh, the service. And supposedly there's supposed to be some programs to help me um, because in no uncertain terms, a big part of my trauma was uh, my father and my grandfather and their trauma. Uh, but so I ended up talking with a therapist uh, with Veterans Affairs. And I won't go into, I've talked about this a little bit, how she was wrong on a number of the different protocols because she said, well, I, I can't help someone with trauma. But in the end, she ended up harming again so I was supposed to get eight sessions. Uh, beginning in the first session, she cut it short. So it wasn't even the full hour. But after that, they kept getting shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. Until the final one, 
she actually said, oh, we're going to have to start wrapping up 25 minutes in. And so she also would say, well, I don't know if I can help you after everyone. And so I finally, at this point, I'm like, okay, that's it. You're going to have to stop this because it's ridiculous. I didn't mention about her cutting it short because I didn't want to make it personal. I just explained to her that, can you not just be human, right? Like, can you not just be and talk and, you know, share your humanity with me? Why do you have to be following a script or having had taken a course on trauma? When in reality, if she had just been a human and even given me 45 minutes of the hour for eight sessions, that could have done wonders. But the real takeaway is not only is she re-traumatizing the traumatized, but our veterans affairs aren't even helping our vets until after the fact. So they're not training the vets how to manage and expect trauma, let alone the families. It's not till after they're traumatized that they're giving them pills at this point, it seems. They've just begun to add in some cognitive-based therapy, but if it's anything like the, the half dozen different ones that I've tried in the past, it's not going to help. Uh, it might even make things worse. Right? So long story short... The gatekeepers are keeping people, just like religion, from having a personal relationship with themselves and their healing and taking control, authenticity, agency, autonomy. I mean, they all sound similar, but it's, it's literally the same story. That until we believe in this stuff, and most importantly, believe in ourselves. Because the real takeaway, t taking all these courses on trauma and childhood trauma, the real problem for a lot of these people is you begin to doubt your own potential. You begin to doubt yourself. And you begin to repeat the same patterns. So, I think the big takeaway is this idea of community. But first, that begins with yourself. How many of us don't even look to ourselves? If, if Paul Stamets is right, and many of us could become our own uh, therapists, well, first, we're going to have to develop a relationship with ourselves. But on that note, I hope you have a fabulous... Uh, Fabulous week. This finds you well. And uh, long live psychedelic philosophy. Am I right? Jeez, uh, here. I thought I was on uh, the, the mad shaman scale, but uh, it seems like I'm actually in the, uh, in the common sense rational uh, spectrum. But have a great day. Thanks for listening.